We'll remain standing for the reading of our our sermon text uh, today, which is taken from Mark chapter 4, begin reading at verse 21, as we look at three short parables of Jesus. Mark 4, verse 21. And he said to them, Is a lamp brought in to be put under a basket or under a bed, and not on a stand? For nothing is hidden except to be made manifest, nor is anything secret except to come to light. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. And he said to them, Pay attention to what you hear. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you, and still more will be added to you. For to the one who has more, more will be given, and from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And he said, The kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. The earth produces by itself, first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts it in the sickle, because the harvest has come. And he said, with what can we compare the kingdom of God, or what parable shall we use for it? It is like a grain of mustard seed, which when sown on the ground is the smallest of all the seeds on earth. Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nest in its shade. With many such parables, he spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. He did not speak to them without a parable, but privately to his own disciples, he explained everything. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Gracious God, encourage us today with the glory and the growth and the greatness of your kingdom. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, I really want to encourage us today, so I'm going to do so by giving you a report. In fact, it's the findings of a 2015 Pew Research Center report that looked at the landscape of Christianity in America. And this report gave this statistics with the, the, asp, the part of our population that claims to be Christian, a decline was observed from 78.4% in 2007, declining to 70.6% in 2014. Roman Catholics and mainline Protestant denominations took the largest hit by declining 3.1% and 3.4% respectively over that same time period. The good news for us, if there is good news in this study, is that those claiming to be evangelicals during that same time period, our ranks declined only 09 So that's a bit of a bright spot, I suppose, uh, for us. Another part of this study showed that those leaving Christianity for non-Christian faith religious groups grew at 1.2% from 07 to 2014. And then as we look at the younger generation, the, the millennials, ages 18 to 33, just taking that large 
swath of our population that those um, that state no religious affinity uh, increase during that time period to 34 to 37 percent of that age group currently stating they have no religious affinity and it's six out of ten of the millennial age group according to the Pew Research uh, Center that they, they really don't identify with any uh, religious persuasion uh, what, whatsoever and so that's what the study shows aren't you encouraged uh, the study shows that Christianity is on the decline. The church is losing ground in our country. Let us stand for the benediction. Do we really need a study to tell us that? I don't. I mean, we have a sense as we look at our culture that the, the tide is against Christianity and is against the church. And so studies like these and our own observations of where our culture is today, even as Jim prayed, it's about the, the troubling indicators uh, in our culture today. Uh, we, we have reasons to be discouraged. We have reasons to be pessimistic because of, of what is going on in our culture today. My, oh, my, what a depressing introduction this is. <laughs> Thankfully, we have three parables that Jesus told where he teaches that his people are to have a very different perspective than what our own human observations might tell us about the future of the church and what studies like the Pew Research Center might tell us about the church. It's a very different perspective. That's what we're going to talk about today. And we began our study of the parables last week as, as we looked at the uh, parable of the sower. And there Jesus taught us the parable of the sower that, that the secret of the kingdom that he talks about is that, is that the kingdom has come in him. And that, that that reality, that truth is hidden from those whom God has passed by and not ordained to be in his kingdom. And they remain hard-hearted towards God. And so they just simply cannot understand this secret or the truths of the kingdom. They look at Jesus as some enigma, some troublemaker. But yet to those whom God has ordained to be in his kingdom, then he reveals the secret of the kingdom to them. He gives us the ability, the, the ears, the spiritual ears and the, and the spiritual eyes to hear and see the truths in these parables. And because he's ordained us to be united to Christ and saving faith and to gather us in the kingdom. And part of his means to doing that is that we're able to see Christ and understand the gospel. And according to his purposes in election, that we would respond in repentance and faith. So the hard-hearted respond negatively uh, to these parables and, and to the gospel message. Those who are prepared, that is, who are ordained for everlasting life, will respond in repentance and faith. And so here we have the kingdom irresistibly coming and gathering the elect of God in 
And Jesus talked about that in the sower. And now he turns in the three parables in the latter part of Mark chapter 4 and gives us a very optimistic view of the future of this kingdom that he has brought in himself and of which we are members. And he does so by looking at the glory and the growth and the greatness of the kingdom. And I don't know about you, but based on my depressing introduction, we need to be reminded of the glory and the growth and the greatness of the kingdom of God. Would you agree with that? And so I am going to encourage us today, not with Pew Research statistics, but with the gospel and the truth that Jesus spoke in these three parables. Well, he begins with the parable of the lamp that is brought in and hidden under a basket. I don't know if you've seen this, uh, this TV show, but I've only seen one episode. It's Undercover Boss, and I know there's some sketchy uh, episodes of, of Undercover Boss, but I saw, I've only seen one, and it was the first one that came out. And, and the first episode of Undercover Boss uh, featured the, the head of waste management, you know, the big national, I call it a garbage country, but I'm sure they would call it a uh, waste management company. It's this huge company. And so the, the premise of this undercover boss is these high-level executives will undercover take a low-level job in their company so they can really see how things are working in the company and also to see if the, what the employees really think about them. So they, the head of waste management, his first job in his com- company was to help pick up trash that had blown out of a landfill. And so he's working with this low-level employee as a low-level employee, and the low-level employee came to him at the end of the day and said, listen, buddy, I don't think you're going to make it with this company. <laughs> you, you need to look for another job. And so one what, what of the highlights was that this guy also worked, another wing of waste management or Porter Johns, and this is a little sketchy, but there was one guy in this company at an amusement park somewhere. His job is to service Porter Johns all day long. And, and so this guy, this low le- the high-level executive works with the guy servicing the Porta Johns. And this guy was so happy. He loved his work. And to tell you the story, kind of at the end, that, that, the, uh, that the boss actually promoted this guy to the company cheerleader because anybody that can be happy about servicing Porta Johns has something to share with others, right? Now, of course, every episode comes to the place where the, the high-level executive that has gone undercover as a low-level employee is revealed to those employees with whom he has worked, and, of course, they're just stunned to know, especially the guy that said, buddy, you need to look for another job, <laughs> that he was actually talking with his boss. But at some point, there was a revelation of the true identity of the undercover boss. And, you know, we have a similar thing going on in this parable where Jesus' true identity, where the secret of his kingdom, where his mission is revealed. And Jesus uses the imagery of a lamp in verses 21 through 25 to show this. And I would suggest the theme verse is verse 22. For nothing is hidden except to be made manifest, nor is anything secret except to come to light. 
See, Jesus talked about a secret of the kingdom, and it, but yet it's a secret that's going to be revealed. It's going to be disclosed. It's going to come uh, to light. And, and it's a glorious revelation, isn't it? Now, if you take your modern translations, if you have NIV, ESV, New King James, they, they, they miss two important points with regards to the original Greek. The verb translated in verse 21, brought, that you might find in your ESV, it literally means in the Greek, to come. Now, it makes sense because Jesus is using a real-life situation where you bring a, a lamp into a room and you don't put it under a basket. But I think we need to see what Jesus is saying here is that he's identifying himself. In fact, the, in, the, in the original Greek, the phrase translated a lamp is actually the lamp. And so the, the text in the Greek reads like this, does the lamp come to be put under a basket? And what is Jesus doing here? He's using a real life situation, lamp brought into a room, give light, you don't put it under a basket to, to show that he is the light and he has come and he is not going to be put under a basket. His light is going to shine. He's brought the kingdom, he's brought salvation and that glorious reality will be revealed. But in verse 22, we learn that for a time, this, there, this reality will be veiled. But yet, the veil will come off, according to verse 22. And that which was concealed will be made light. And Jesus' mission and, and messianic glory will shine forth in this world. And let's think about Jesus' ministry his earthly ministry was misunderstood. It was shadowy. Even the disciples misunderstood Jesus' ministry, though he gave them glimpses of it time and time again. But from the resurrection on, that mission was revealed, and we beheld the glory of Jesus and he, his redeeming work. He is the King of kings and Lord of lords. He, his messianic mission was completed. He did win salvation for God's people. And that reality, that glorious reality, has broke forth and illuminated this world. Yes, some don't see it, even though the light's blaring them in the face. But you know what? I've seen it. You've seen it. It's been revealed. What a blessing it is. And of course, this, this glorious truth will be revealed in full at the culmination when Christ comes again. What did we read in the call to worship? Every knee, all humanity will bow and confess Christ. That all is inclusive there in Philippians chapter 2. And there, after all the dead bodies have been raised and everybody is gathered before Christ, everyone the hard-hearted in this life and the, the soft-hearted in this life will confess that Jesus is Lord. One day, everybody will see the glorious Christ. And there'll be no more disclosing. So the implications that we find also in this parable, verses 24 through 25, how one responds to the, the, the gospel message in this life is of utmost importance. It's a serious matter. Our response has eternal consequences. So those who continually reject 
the gospel and are hardened toward it, they will reap a reward and its ultimate loss. But those who respond to the gospel in faith and repentance, verses 24 through 25 tell us that there is ultimate reward. See, there's a measure. And those who have been given much and really not produced, even what they have will be taken away. That's a reference to the hard-hearted. And we need to remember that, that every single day that, that we live in a world that is a dark place. And if all we do is use our eyes and our ears and our minds to evaluate it, we will be discouraged. And we will be in despair. This parable tells us that we are to be optimistic for the glory of Christ has illuminated our way and our lives. And His glory shines brightly in this dark world. Several years ago, I was flying in a small airplane, and our object was to fly south of Little Rock to Malvern, to the airport around Malvern, Arkansas. I'm sure most of you are thinking, that just sounds so exciting. But it was, because the Mal- at night, the Malvern Airport has been called the black hole. And I really didn't know what that meant. But it, pitch black night, we're in a small plane, and we fly. And the Malvern Airport, at least it was back then, is, was really kind of cut into a pine forest. And so it's just stuck out there. There are absolutely no lights around it to give any orientation. And so we're flying, and I know that airport is out there, but all I can see is blackness. Interestingly, uh, in these small airplanes and these little municipal airports, if you, on your airplane radio, tune tune in the right frequency and click your mic a certain number of times, you can actually activate the runway lighting system. And that's what we did. And in this black hole... With the proper procedure, all of a sudden, boom, a glorious, illuminated runway. And we landed safely. And the glory of Christ has shone upon this world. And we've been given the eyes to behold His glory. We've been given the heart to respond in repentance and faith. And we have a safe landing in eternity because of that. Have you seen the light of the glory of Christ? Even in this dark world, it illuminates the truth and the way and the life. And this this glorious kingdom that is gathering in the elect because the light has, has shone brightly in this dark world is also a kingdom that is growing I mentioned this, this Pew Research study uh, that shows that Christianity and the church is shrinking in our country. But there's another study that's a bit more encouraging from, from Gordon Conwell Theological Seminary that basically says that globally, Christianity is on the increase, especially in the global uh, south. And how exciting that is. And we should expect such a report, uh, shouldn't we? So as we look at this second parable, the growth of the kingdom and the, and the, uh, the, the seed that, that grows, we look at verses 26 through 28, and in particular, 
in verse 27, the second part of it, there's a little phrase I find very interesting. It simply is this, he knows not how. And to what does that little saying refer? You know, the farmer in the the parable engages in horticulture. He sows the seed, he observes when it sprouts, and, and he's there looking at it grow and probably doing some weeding and other such things. And he's even involved in the fact that at some point there's going to be a harvest. And so, He plans uh, there for the harvest. So it's not like this farmer in this parable has no clue about what farming is all about or horticulture. But he says he knows, Jesus says of this farmer, he knows not how. He knows not how for what? What does he not know? Now as we look at this parable in relationship to the sower, Jesus has focused on the beginning phase of plants. It's sowing, right? And then in this parable, he even moves uh, to the end of it, which is the harvest. So you've got the beginning, sowing, you've got the end, the harvest. And we know that ultimately that harvest is at the second coming when, when the, the wheat is separated from the weeds and, and is brought in, that ultimate harvest. But yet the point of the parable is not the beginning and the end, the harvest, it's the middle. That it speaks about a great power is unleashed. For the seed falls into the earth and then as if mysteriously, now we have to understand this is the first century. And this little farmer, you know, has not had the, the value of our technology and knowing all about germination and all that kind of stuff. So to him, this was kind of a mysterious power. Seed hits the dirt, and all of a sudden, something sprouts up. Wow! He observes the result of this power that's at work there in the soil and this seed. The plant sprouts and it grows. You know, it's interesting that, that we observe the church Uh, growing in hard places like China. We observe the church growing in in, uh, countries or continents like Africa that so many of those places are underdeveloped. And I'm kind of amazed at, at where the church grows. And studies like the Gordon Conwell study or even the Pew Research Center can kind of report on the, the result of this growth and might suggest causes for this growth. But the parable is pointing to this, that the plant sprouts and grows because of this mysterious power. And that mysterious power is the power of God. And this parable reminds us that God is the one who brings about the establishment and growth of of his church. The messianic work of Christ came and unleashed this powerful force that is advancing the kingdom of God and, and growing it all to achieve the sovereign purposes of God. And look at verse 28. It's crucial. Consider this. What is the reason for the growth? And the imagery is really is is pronounced here because here this farmer does all these things, sows and observes and harvests, but really the point of the parable is that this, this power that brings about the sprouting and the growing is done while the farmer is asleep. (laughs) And it just, it is to emphasize 
human inactivity in being the ultimate cause for the growth of the kingdom of God. The passage that Jim read earlier from Ezekiel speaks about this tree being planted, giving shades to the birds, pointing to Jesus, and about the growth of the kingdom of God. And the very last statement is so profound where God says to the prophet, where the prophet says that he that is God will do it. And that's what we have to keep in mind. God will do it. The gates of hell can't prevail against the church, Matthew 16. God will do it, Ezekiel 17, build his church. And here's an implication for us. The church needs to be faithful in ministering to people inside the church and people outside the church. And so it's quite appropriate for us to think about helpful and biblical methods uh, to do that. But unfortunately, some of the methods that are suggested, especially from those that are in the church growth movement, would have us think that we've got to water down worship so that we're not offensive to unchurched people that might come in, that we've got to take the sermon and to not make it about the, the proclamation of, of the gospel and God's word, but to make it needs-felt-based and use it as, as a motivational talk so that people can improve in their daily life. Now, I'm, I'm completely convinced that if we faithfully preach and teach the gospel, our needs are going to be addressed, and we are going to learn how to uh, be a better friend <laughs> to others. And the seeker-sensitive movement is, is, is seeking that we set aside some biblical convictions that we might have. I'll tell you what God's church growth strategy is. This is his plan. It's a simple plan. And it's this. Worship, preaching the gospel rightly, administering the sacraments faithfully and throwing their church discipline and prayer. That's God's church growth strategy for us and it's his power that's working to grow the church and we need to be faithful not to try to buy into slick marketing schemes and strategies that are human based to grow the church but to seek about growing the church the way God has told us to grow the church to use his method his strategy in growing the church Listen, brothers and sisters, I want to see covenant grow. I really do. And I have to admit, there's some pride bound up in that. Sorry. But I also want to see covenant grow because I want to see the kingdom of God expand. And there's a real pull and there's a temptation, I think, for all of us to try to use human means to bring about what only God can do instead of using God's means and trusting him to do what he said he was going to do. He'll do it. And so I'm excited about the growth of the kingdom. I'm excited about the growth of the church because it's not about our methods. It's not about my preaching. It's not about your giftedness in teaching Sunday school. That's a big part. But it's about God doing what God said he would do. He'll do it. Glory, growth, and lastly, greatness. Key concept of this 
third point here is verses 21 through 32, or I'm sorry, verses 21 and verse 32. This, this concept is from small things, big things come. And several years ago, I planted sweet potatoes. I have to give Dan Butkowski credit for this because he planted sweet potatoes. And I said, if Dan can do it, I can do it. So I planted uh, sweet potatoes. What I didn't, didn't estimate is <laughs> how how massive the sweet potato vines would actually be. My mother told me. I should have listened to her. She's a country girl. So I planted my sweet potatoes, and it, it, my backyard was covered with, with sweet potato vines. I was amazed at how pervasive those. It looked like I planted 100 sweet potato plants. I only planted five. And we got sweet potatoes. They were all deformed, but they tasted good. But something incredible happens here in this parable. From igno- this small beginning, something massive, pervasive, expansive uh, comes about. Verse 21, Jesus is not saying the kingdom of God is like the mustard seed. He's saying the kingdom of God is like what results when a mustard seed <laughs> uh, grows. And you know, he says it's the, it's, the, it's the smallest seed. Well, in the Jewish context, it was in a proverbial sense. It, was the, the small, it wasn't the smallest seed ever, but it was the smallest seed that, that would be planted in a garden or a field. And in fact, it takes, I did not count these, but I read, 725 to 760 seeds to weigh a gram. So it's a, <laughs> it's a really small small seed. But you plant this thing, and it turns into a plant that's 10 to 12 feet high. And in Palestinian gardens, birds would rest under the shade of the the mustard plant. In fact, in Judaism, it's kind of a a saying. If you want to really describe something small, you say it's as small as a mustard seed. And yet, this huge plant comes. And so here, Jesus is relating the kingdom to what happens when it begins to grow. And it's going to grow into something great. We saw this in Ezekiel 17. We we saw this back in our study of Daniel in chapter 2. We'll refer to Daniel chapter 4 in just a moment. But it's all pointing to the expansiveness of the kingdom of God from a very small beginning. Then in verse 32, again, looking at the greatness of the kingdom where birds would come and rest under this, this, this shrub as they would in any Palestinian garden. They're... they're pointing us to the strength and protection of the kingdom of uh, God, starting with such small beginnings, having dominion. Remember what the apostles said in Acts chapter 17, verse 6, or what was said of the apostles in Acts 17. This little band of misfits really are turning the world upside down. Small, enigmatic, Turning the world upside down. You know, Daniel 4.21 speaks of a tree and birds resting under this tree. But it's a tree that represents Nebuchadnezzar and his kingdom. And in his day, his kingdom was a worldwide denomination or or had worldwide dominion. I don't think Nebuchadnezzar was in a denomination. Certainly wasn't in the PCA back then. But, But Jesus' kingdom will be so infinitely superior to the greatest human kingdom, Nebuchadnezzar's, that's, that's existed far outpaced. So, so here are the implications. The greatness of Christ's kingdom means that believers should be 
the most pessimistic people in the world? No, the most optimistic people in the world. Does this optimism result in pride? No. For what brings us into the kingdom? God's grace. Should this result in licentiousness? Hey, I'm in the kingdom, so it doesn't matter how I live. No, because there are demands placed upon us. Just to give you an example, Jesus said, deny yourself and take up your cross and follow me. And does this mean that we need to set aside the Great Commission? No, because God uses his kingdom people to participate in the sowing of the gospel to all men in this world. It's part of his means. And so this optimistic view points us to having confidence in God. Secondly, this optimistic view humbles us. It's not about our philosophy of ministry and, and methodologies. Ultimately, they're important, but, but God is the one who grows the church. And then thirdly, an optimistic view promotes confidence in God, humility before God, and thirdly, hope. And that really is where I want to leave us today with this this. This word, if you will, of hope. When it was built uh, for an international exposition, the citizens of this great city were outraged. <laughs> they, they called this structure monstrous. And they demanded that after the exposition, that this, this, this hideous monument would be uh, torn down. They simply did not want this blight upon their great city. But the architect, from the very beginning of it being a, con a, con a conceptual image in his mind, knew that, that his little structure was destined uh, for greatness. And some of you may know this story but today, this particular structure, this monstrous structure, is one of the wonders uh, of the modern world, an architectural uh, wonder. And it happens to be the pri one of the primary landmarks in the great city of uh, Paris, uh, France. And you may know the name, Alexander Gustave Eiffel, who built his little tower in 1889, knowing that it was destined for greatness. And he was right. Jesus is the architect and builder of his church. And he knows that it is destined for greatness because he has established it. And he is growing it. And he is making it great because he is great. And he has placed his love upon us that we would be part of that glorious and great destiny known as the church of Jesus Christ. What a privilege we have to live in this kingdom. And because of that, 
our perspective should ever be optimistic about the future of the church. You know, the Pew Research Study and others like it would have you and me be discouraged. Maybe to the point we just give up. But we need to remember the glory of the kingdom, the glory of Christ has, has been revealed. And we've seen it. And we've been drawn to it. And we live in it. And God is the one who grows his kingdom. And he is growing it. Sinners are coming into his kingdom all over the world. And God's not done even with our own land. Because there are elect people still in the United States of America. And God is going to bring them in to his kingdom. The glory of Christ, the glory of the kingdom, the growth of the kingdom, God is growing it. And the greatness of the kingdom of which we are a part. Are you optimistic about the church? Let's pray. Father in heaven, I would ask that you would drive away the fear that we might have because of the, the darkness that we see in, in our world and the cultural tide that seems to be so much against the progress of the church, the true church here in our own land. Protect us from that. Drive that fear away. Cause us to see the glorious illumination of the light of Christ in our own lives and that's shining forth in this world. Cause us, Father, to use the right methods and to be wise in that, but to ultimately rest in you growing your church and to rejoice in that growth worldwide. And, Father, I pray that you would cause us to be excited about being a part of that which you have destined for greatness. We are in that great kingdom today, and it's only going to get greater. Give us an optimistic view of the church because you are the sovereign grower and harvester, and you are all glorious. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.